Note to self, peeps sure do love their let and const. <laughs> love, Ben. Yo. You're listening to Working Code with your hosts, one of whom probably just wrote a new JavaScript library, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Here we go. It is show number 62. And on today's show, we're going to talk to Ben's inner monologue. Mm. Um, <laughs> he has this habit of leaving notes for himself in our private channel and discord. And so we're just going to go through those and talk to Ben about his notes to himself. But first, as usual, we're going to start with our triumphs and fails. And as luck would have it, Ben, you are first. What do you got going on, man? I'm going to kick it off with a triumph. And that is that I went from a initial thought, an idea for a feature in the product to a deployed MVP in front of users in two days. And uh, that two days of development included like 10 different deploys if I, if to, to shade just how much I lean into feature flags and incremental development and small iterations. And I was just really excited to be able to get it done. And I'm yeah, you don't have to feel bad that it took you two whole days, man. It's all right. <laughs> I'm definitely leaning hard into the ask for forgiveness, don't ask for permission mode at work. As I've said many times in the past, the only person left on the legacy platform, I'm basically unsupervised. So anytime I see a ticket that addresses a user friction, I'm just like, yeah, I'll do that. And I'm just having a good time doing it. So. Pretty excited. Nice. Now, are these just, are they MVPs within a already existing structure or is it like a completely separate thing on its own? You know, this is all added to the existing application that, okay. that users are currently engaged with, although increasingly fewer users as they move over to the new platform. That's platform. a, that's really good. Cause a few weeks back, you were kind of a little bummed out by how I things were going. So it's good to hear little, positive. New Year's blues, but I'm just kicking it hardcore now. And uh, you know what it is? They're predicting, I think I can say this, they're predicting uh, that the migration from the old platform to the new platform will be done by the end of the year. So the way I look at it, that gives me another 11 months to try and remove friction and add some value for the users that are still there. And there's no bar of number of users where I'm going to stop caring. That's sort of my mentality right now. And I'm just going to keep pushing what I can push. So when we talked about feature flags originally, and I think also when we talked about like pull request velocity, both sort of prior episodes, I was struggling to wrap my head around a good reason for why you would want to deploy unfinished code behind a feature flag. Mm -hmm. And and I never really came up with a good reason. I just kind of accepted it as like, okay, well, it seems to work for you and that that's fine. But I was kind of reading and learning the other day and I and kind of reminded myself of continuous integration and continuous deployment. And one of the aspects of continuous integration that didn't really click in my head until that moment, like earlier this week, was that as you're continuously merging your changes back into, let's just call it the main branch, your tests are going with it. Now, obviously, not your tests, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a hypothetical Ben who writes tests, his tests are going in too. So the benefit then becomes that even though your features are incomplete, if somebody were to break something that you're in the middle of working on, right, then your tests will start to fail for them. I think that was like a, a big light bulb like moment for me. Yeah, sure. I can definitely see that. I have a empathy, which is the one where it's like you feel for the person, even though you don't actually experience it yourself. Yeah, empathy. <laughs> I have empathy for your test-driven development benefits. <laughs> well, I mean, just to, I can give you a very practical example. So the feature that I was working on has to do with changing or slightly changing a permissions model. And part of the complexity of, of dealing with the application is that it's a SPA single-page application, which means that at any moment, the user's browser has code open that may have been loaded for a day or for several days, and then it's going to be interacting with servers that are being deployed continuously behind the scenes. So you get this sort of drift between what the client expects and what the server expects. And then when you're Mm -hmm. deploying code, and if that deployment is going to a horizontally scaled servers, 
then at any one moment during that deploy, some servers have the new code and some servers have the old code. And the browser, because of round robining in the load balancer, might hit the old servers and might hit the new servers. So one of the things that I had to do in this feature was I wanted to change the structure of a permissions model that was being returned in an API response. So this API response had a bunch of data and then it has a little side object that says, and here's the things you can do with that data just to help me render the view. So I didn't want to change both the server side code and the client side consuming code at the same time because there'd be a chance that someone would refresh their browser at just the wrong moment get the new client side code that expected a new structure, but then be making an API request to the old server that was not yet returning that structure. So instead of doing them both at the same time, I'll deploy just the changes to the server side, make sure that's rolled out, and then deploy the changes to the client side to make sure that any refreshed browser is hitting a server that has the most up-to-date code. Hmm. And coordinating that it doesn't always have to be done behind a feature flag if your change is you know completely additive then it doesn't have to be behind a feature flag unless you want the ability to quote unquote roll back using the feature flag but that's just to illustrate the small deploys and the incremental builds yeah Yeah. i don't quite follow how that helps with drift right like the how the incremental deploys helps with drift but that's okay we don't have to get into that now Yeah, yeah no worries it, it, it's because the, the client side and the server side code are all in the same repository and they all go out with the same deploys. So I, I can't choose if, to deploy it, just the server side code. Right. But the, I, I guess maybe I misunderstood you. So the drift that I was thinking of was somebody keeps their browser window open for a week and, you know, never leaves the tab. Right. So they're not getting new client code. Right. So, so that's, that person's probably okay. The issue is that. In the middle of the deployment, what if a user refreshes their browser and the request that serves up their client-side code is the new code, which is expecting a new structure on the server, but then the API request that they make subsequently, still mid-deploy, hit an old server that hasn't yet been Mm. updated. So now they have new code that's expecting new structure, but they're getting old structure. Goodness. Yeah. it's That's a mind-bender. It's it's definitely something. it's, It's an edge case. It doesn't always happen. It depends on the, the volume of the traffic for the particular feature. And I'll tell you, to be honest, sometimes I will deploy stuff in, a, in an edgy case area of the application that I know doesn't get a lot of usage. And I just be like, you know what? There's a chance that in the few minutes that this is deploying, if someone were to refresh their page at the wrong time, they're going to get an error. And I'm like, I'm just going to eat that cost because I don't want to have to do two deploys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, we just do after-hours deployments in those cases. So if we feel like it could have any impact, we just pull it to an after-hours deployment rather than splitting it up. Yeah, that's all a trade-off. Yeah, It it all depends on how important the part of the application is. Except for that one user in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that's my triumph. What about you, Adam? What do you got going on? So I'm on call this week, and sometimes software fails, and... It's not my fault that it fails, but when it fails, let me be less abstract and more concrete. I'm on call this week, and sometimes there were alerts that were coming to me, but I wasn't getting any alert sounds. I would get the notification. It would pop up on my phone if I happened to be looking at my phone, but it wouldn't make any sound. My my phone was not on Do Not Disturb. My volume was all the way up, blah, blah, blah. And because I didn't respond to these alerts, they were escalating to some of my coworkers and I felt like a total because it's their, it's their week to not be on, on call rotation. Right. And so I feel like a when a, an alert happens and it escalates beyond me when I should have caught it. And fortunately, I was having a little bit of a rough week and I was spending some time pairing with a couple of my coworkers. And alerts were happening while I was on video chat with them. And like, I heard the alert go off on their phone. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm the one on call. Why did you get that? And and so we went to talking about it. And that's when I realized like something's messed up with the software. I like reinstalled the app on my phone and started messing with notifications, couldn't get it working. So now I have it on my iPad as well as my phone. And of course, now that I set it up on the iPad too, so that I don't get, I don't miss any. Now, when alarms go off, they go off on both, and I have to deal with it on both. (laughs) But yeah, so it's just, it's a little bit of a rough week. Software is failing me and and making me look bad when I'm, you know, I'm not. It's not even your software. Yeah, yeah, it's not my software. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's just, I feel bad. 
I'm not living up to my, the standard I set for myself. Yeah. I hear you. I, my team almost never gets paged. Like maybe once every two years we get paged. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a longer term thing, but yeah, when you say my team, now you team mean I. It's just you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is even back when there was a handful, like four people on the team, we never ever got paged because there was really no active development that was pushing the boundaries of anything. It was kind of the application was in a stable known state. And I have a, an, a reminder on my phone that goes off at 930 and it reminds me to turn my volume on and make sure that my pager duty app is connected. So I'll open a PagerDuty app and I swipe down just to make sure that it gets a status update. I'm like, okay, I can go to sleep. And I, for whatever reason, forgot to do it one night a couple of months ago. And of course, that was the night the server crashed. And not only did I not get the page, but none of the engineers on my team got the page. It went all the way up to the engineering manager. Oh, no. no. Was that the, was that the, like the Thanksgiving one that we talked about recently? No, no. This, I guess, was like a year ago. Okay. I will say one of my coworkers messaged me the other day and said that he had just finished the episode where you dropped some f bombs <laughs> and told me to send you hugs because Thank you. man, that sounded rough. <laughs> Yo, it was good times like, now. Man. In retrospect, and if you have the urge to rewrite any Angular JS code, he has a job for you. Oh, I guess I'm not living up to my job here. My task is to throw it over to Tim. (laughs) That was my failure and and second failure to keep the ball rolling. (laughs) What's what's going on for you, man? So I'm going for a triumph. I had, I mean, I had an extremely productive week. I mean, just really just it's Thursday today. We're recording and just every day is just like has been revelation after revelation, just getting a lot of stuff done, stuff that I've been avoiding, but just finally tackled it. And then just there's some, there's a lot of times in in the software we do is like, it's not necessarily stuff you're building. It's like getting a partnership with a certain provider that can, they're the only ones who have this type of information or data or this API and it's all financial stuff. So there's all this due diligence and the security. It's like, it takes forever. I mean, it's been working on some of this stuff, 14, 15 months. It's like everything this week is just kind of lined up and just kind of fell in place. And then we had some customers that are prospects that, that we thought we had lost and they came back like the same week and they were asking for the exact same thing that we just finally figured out and got it solved. And so I just felt like everything came together this week and just, I, I don't know. It's like the cards fell in place. Sometimes you're the kicker yeah. and sometimes you're the ball. This time I was this week I was the kicker, man. <laughs> it felt good. Everything's coming up millhouse. Yeah, man. It just it just feels good to move stuff forward cuz sometimes it's like you got this this boulder that you're just constantly pushing up the hill, constantly pushing up the hill and it's like this will never get done. And then you get in friction internally from the company cuz like, why is this taking so long? Well, you know what? If legal got out of my way and if finance got out of my way and all these other regulatory crap if they just get out of my way, that the problem is not the technology. I, we built the technology. The problem is the relationships, the 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 contracts and all this other stuff that is totally outside my expertise and I even if it were my expertise, it's not something I want to do. I'm not interested in that. I really don't care about that stuff. I want you to take care of it. And it just, I felt like that boulder got to the top of the hill and now it's like, I'm running. Now I'm having to run to catch up with it. Right. Cause it's, it's getting ahead of me. So That's it's great. an exciting feeling. So. Yeah. There's nothing like the finish line. The finish yeah. line is the best well, isn't place. The finish line? It's not the finish line, but it's like, it's finally, there's is less friction now. Right. There's it's, there's forward progress rather than just a constant battle for me. Mm-hmm. It's kindly just battled to get this thing going. So. Nice. Well, I hope you find the finish line soon then. It's yeah. in sight. Good. So. Good. How about you, Carol? I'm going to go with the triumph. So a few weeks back, we started this new sprint slash cycle process for how we develop. And at first, there were just all of these big unknowns. We didn't really fully understand what we were doing. But, you know, we're team players. So we're like, let's go try this and figure out what, what we got to do to make this work. So going into it, there's just a lot of downtime and none of us like downtime, but you can't go pick up anything from the backlog because you should really be researching cycle work. So it's just, it's been a huge adjustment and I haven't fallen apart (laughs) and we haven't went completely crazy because none of us like change. We are like, my team is, are 
we're creatures of habit. It's what we do, right? We're really set in how we do things and we like, we just move the same way every day. So to pull half the team off of sprint work and put them on a cycle. Oh, and the cycle lasts eight weeks. It's not just a couple weeks here and then you go back to the team. It's you're on cycle work for eight weeks. So it's a whole new way of doing things. And it's just been an adjustment, but it's actually being accepted really well and going over pretty smooth, I think. When you say it's being accepted well by the developers, by the managers? Oh, so all the other teams... All the other engineering teams were already doing this. We were just the only mm. only piece in the organization that wasn't. So they're like, hey, we need you to align with some of our cycles because now your work is impacting our work and we need everything to go out together. So we're going to need to step some things like this. So, yeah, it's being accepted very well by our engineers. So, yeah. And they're doing good with us. They're being very helpful and understanding that we don't know what we're doing. So me and my pair programming buddy, we kind of got in trouble today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to air quote in trouble. We didn't get in trouble. We went to the first tech review and had already coded the entire project. And they're (laughs) like, oh, this is the initial review. Next time, don't code it yet. Go ahead and let's do the (laughs) review and write all the documentation and get everything before you code it. I was like, oh, we already have the PRs out. I'm sorry. They're like, no, you're learning. It's fine. I'm like, nobody told us not to code, so we can research. (laughs) You're researching it. Yeah. So you guys write the documentation prior to coding? Yeah, we write the document. So we have a tear sheet review, which is kind of the business requirements. It just lays out what their problem is and what they think might be some helpful solutions. Like, we don't have to use their solutions. It's just, here's the problem. Maybe this will help you in coming up with a design. Then we take the tear sheet and we write that into a technical document. So the technical document has everything laid out for how it's going to impact the system, what changes we're going to make in the database, what the new structure is going to look like, and along with questions that we just don't know answers to and that we need business input from. So then we're supposed to go back. Well, we didn't have any questions, so we just did it. (laughs) So So it's not really, it's not user documentation. No, it's all technical documentation. It's just to lay out the changes and so that we can get back together as a group and go over the new structure. Yeah. Kind of like a project plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm loving it though. So eight weeks is going to be a long time though. So as far as the problem that this is solving, is it just an issue of getting all the teams deploying at the same time? No. So we actually won't be deploying at the same time. We will still be deploying as we get done with the work. So the deployments and releases aren't tied together with the cycle. It's just that like we have another organization that's created this API that we're hooked up to. So we now have to change authentication in order to actually get to that. And because we're not in their cycle process, it was just kind of in our backlog. So we have like a few things that are overlapping with each other. And it was just to get those overlapping projects to the endpoint at the same time. So they'll be holding some of their stuff waiting on ours, or there'll be times where we finish, but hold waiting on theirs to get done. So process is such a hard thing. I'm not against process. I know process has its place, mm-hmm. but I'm definitely all over the place sometimes. I remember I had an engineering manager a while back and he desperately wanted to use burn down charts, which are, mm-hmm. I guess, charts that show you. We're uh, running out of time. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. But in every sprint, I would complete like 11 tickets and create like 27 new tickets for myself. Yep. So the burnt down charts were just like horizontal lines. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, yeah. please stop creating tickets. And I'm like, but I have ideas. <laughs> but your burn down chart should really only be what's in the sprint. Like as far as that goes, like your burn down <laughs> chart should say, okay, here's my sprint. Here's what manpower we have to do the sprint. And now I need to see that we are finishing the work with the resources that we have. So you shouldn't be adding to the sprint after the sprint started. It's backlog. the backlog. You can work it while it's in the backlog. Just don't sure. tell anybody. Just don't put it in the sprint bucket. Then nobody knows. It's so hard. I have such a fear of the backlog. The backlog to me feels like a place that stuff goes to die. Part of my problem is that I don't know how to use Jira very effectively. And sometimes it's literally just, I don't know how to get to the backlog. And then I think there's like different forms of backlogs for the different types of boards or something. And then some things are projects and some things are boards. I'm very confused by the flexibility and the robustness of Jira. So I end up just using my to-do column as my personal backlog. 
So all of my new tickets go right into the uh, to-dos, which I think is part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It's kind of your viewpoint. It's like to a, to a business where you're charging money for doing the work, backlog is like future money. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, all it yeah, is. Yeah. That's, that's, that's future professional that. services. That's like your piggy bank. Yeah, it's not your support ticket. It's not your Kanban board. It is the what we got that we can do that's development new. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. We do a product, so it's not like there's no explicit monetary value attached to any particular ticket. It's more the overall value proposition for the product itself. Gotcha. I love that we all do the same things, but do it so differently. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, it's just great. Hey, are you enjoying the show so far? I hope so. And if you are, I hope you'll support our sponsor and get yourself a free trial of Audible by going to workingcode.dev slash Audible. You're smart people. You know how this works. You get a free book credit for the most popular audiobook service on the planet. No strings attached. And we get a little kickback from that. Thanks for supporting us by supporting our sponsors. Now back to the show. Note to self. To throw or not to throw an error when a delete operation is requested for something that doesn't exist. Quietly exit. Defer idempotency to a higher level in the call stack. Don't know. Love Ben. <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. I like this oh, format. So, good. <laughs> so, so this is a thought that I, I, I've been having a lot lately as I've, one, been refactoring the my blogging platform and also just as I've been trying to modernize some of the legacy platform at work. And the idea here is a user makes a request to delete a record or to end the relationship between a record or to do something that's usually Break some up. sort of, yeah. We need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gripped with, let's say I need to delete a record by an ID. Mm-hmm. Do I need to, in my low-level service, make a request to the database to get that record by ID first to make sure that it exists? And then if it doesn't, say like, hey, you asked me to delete this thing and it doesn't exist, so here's a big juicy error. Mm. Or do I just quietly say, oh, that thing must not exist, so maybe the user like click the submit button twice and the first one went through okay, so I'm just going to ignore the second one and just quietly pass by and return void. Or at this point about item potency, do I, as the low-level data access layer, throw an error and say, hey, you asked me to delete this thing and it's not there, so kablamo, an explosion, and then leave something higher up in the stack and say, oh, this delete operation threw a not found error, so I'm going to just ignore it at my level of the application mm. where I can sort of massage some higher level business logic into the workflow. I can tell you that I never think about this problem unless I need to do something weird, right? So uh, 99.99% of the time, I just write some SQL that says delete from table where right. ID equals X. And my SQL is like, or whatever database is just gonna be like, oh, that row doesn't exist. I'm just going to delete zero rows. Okay, done. Yo, totally. And as someone who always has a little performance monkey on his back thinking about how is this code going to perform, does this database query make sense, the idea of pulling a record back just to see if it exists before you then delete it feels mm-hmm. like, oh, that's wasted CPU mm-hmm. cycles. Feels so dirty. But yeah. then I struggle with the idea of, yeah, but I'm mutating the system and should the mutations of the system be where I'm worried so much about performance or should I really just be worried about performance on the, the like the view rendering and the reads and not, right. I don't care about throwing away clock cycles when I'm doing so, the, the CRUD operations. I know what I just said, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I take um, it all back. <laughs> I, I'm also coming from uh, one of my applications is very heavy ORM user. Mm-hmm. And you can delete like using HQL or whatever. So you don't necessarily have to load the entity in order to delete it. If you happen to have it, you can just say, okay, delete this entity and, and that's fine. Where I, that starts to become something where I have to make a decision is we audit log like everything that you do. And yeah. so in addition to saying Carol deleted message 45, I also want to log what will, what was the subject of that message and um, maybe a few yeah. other bits of metadata about that message so that if the record's gone, so instead of having to pull something, pull a database back up and restore it so that I know what message she deleted, I can, oh, okay, that was expected to be deleted. So I don't have to worry about that. So I, I could see 
in that case, needing to do a select first in order to get the details so that you can audit log that you're about to delete <laughs> that thing. That that makes sense. And I think that's a pretty valid use case as well. I mean, I think people create audit logs in applications all the time. Yeah, it's something I just go back and forth on. It's so easy to just fire off a delete from. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if it exists. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of torn. I mean, it, it, the end result is the same, right? So the end result is I want this record gone. And for some reason, you get multiple deletes. And the first one got there and is a race condition or something and deleted it. Why throw an error on the second one? Because now you got to go figure it out. And you're like, well, it is deleted. Why are we erroring? Why do I have to bubble this up the stack? Well, I think my perspective on the way Ben explained it was that by throwing an error, you give the entire stack potentially until whatever layer catches it and ignores it, the opportunity to make a decision based on that event. Right, right? exactly. I, I can either let it continue to bubble, I can handle it, or I can ignore it. So maybe you do a delete, and if it you find out you deleted no rows, then it bubbles an error, and then the next one goes, well, how did it get deleted? Like if you've been error logging it or something, and then ignored if it's not a problem. All right. No, no, it's, it's, it's a good thought. It's a good it, thought. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and it's sort of like a slightly tangential. Bulk operations are another thing where this feels like I don't have a good pattern of, I don't have an established pattern of how I like to do a bulk operation. Cause let's say that you're submitting a request to delete uh, 10 records, not just one record. And let's say that in the middle of that bulk delete, there's some sort of a deadlock on the database and the request fails. And let's say that the client retries or something, or, or the, let's just say that the, we showed the user, Hey, this didn't work. Maybe you should try it again. So they click the submit again and they're submitting the same 10 IDs because they don't right. know what failed or what worked. So now it's rerunning the same bulk operation and five of them might work and five of them might reference IDs that no longer exist. And I feel like I don't want to ruin the bulk operation just because one of the things failed. I want to try and do as many things as possible. So your bulk operation isn't in a transaction. So it's not right. if it fails, there's a full rollback. Okay. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And part of the reason I'm trying to shy away from high level transactions as much as possible because I'd rather have someone get a partial success as long as it doesn't leave the system in an in a inconsistent state. Right. Like deleting, if two records have to be deleted together, I'd wrap that in a transaction. But if someone wants to do a bulk operation where they're doing essentially the same operation, but 10 times, I'd kind of want to just let those play out individually. But then, not to tangent one more time, <laughs> but, and then it becomes well, I mean, like, why well, not? <laughs> it's your diary. Then it becomes like in the middle of the operation. What if there are different types of errors? Okay, so there's the, I want to delete a record, but it doesn't exist. That's one type of issue, let's call it. But then there's the user asked to delete this one record, but they, from a security standpoint, don't have access right. to that record. Right. And I'm like, do I treat that as not existing or do I just ig ignore it and let the rest of the bulk operation proceed? Or is this a special case where I say, uh, actually, this is a totally different beast of a different color and you should get an error now because you're trying to do something illegal. 401, no access, right? Yeah. Well, 401, yeah, I don't know who you are. <laughs> 403, right. not allowed. 403, um, 403. But They're then it begs the, the question, like, why is someone performing a bulk operation where half the IDs yeah. they have access to and half they don't? But then it could be... Well, but it, what could, be it, it could, could be malicious. It could be malicious, but it could yeah. also be, again, like... I think... Not to play edge case bingo, but, like, what happens if, as the person was about to submit the form, another member of their team removed them from a project that owned one of the IDs that they're about to access. So like as the mouse button is going down, oh, suddenly man. one of the IDs oh, wow. become invalid. And I'm, like I'm not sure. Impossible I'm, movie. <laughs> ben, your users, I don't like them anymore. No. It, it's all just like theoretical thought experiments on handling edge cases and, and when to throw errors. But anyway, this is the kind of stuff that becomes note to self. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking right, I of, got, I got the next one. All right. Note to self. Sometimes <laughs> I feel guilty about using a backup camera when parking. Is that something I see in other parts of my life? <laughs> Love Ben. <laughs> okay, please explain this. <laughs> right, what so is wrong with a backup camera? No, backup cameras are magical. They're magical. They're the 
Yes, they have lines and everything. Oh my God, it's the best. I, I, and I think they're becoming mandatory or maybe- They I already are in all new vehicles. Yeah, so they're clearly a huge value add. They're a safety feature. They're a convenience feature, etc. But part of me feels like am I, is, is my, the muscle that is my ability to parallel park, is that starting to atrophy now that mm. I'm using a camera? Which it almost certainly is because oh, I yeah. use my camera for everything. And, but then I, I, I wrestle with this. Is that a bad thing or is that a fear-based thing? Am I, it, is the fact that I'm getting worse at something that I used to be better at just a fear response or should I lean into the technology and embrace it as sort of a, an augmented sense of self? So when we back up the car, I am the one that looks at the camera. I very rarely look at my mirrors. It's only if I can't see something in the camera or my car beeps at me. And I'm like, well, there's nothing on the camera. Why is it beeping? (laughs) Steve is the one that puts his hand on the passenger seat and turns Mm -hmm. his head around backwards and looks in the mirrors. Yeah. doesn't mean very rarely uses the camera, even though it's on. I could cover it up and he could still back up. You cover it up and I'm like, where's the camera? I don't know how. So I fully think that it does. You stop figuring out how to do things because you get so dependent on the technology. And I think for people who don't get dependent on technology, they're probably going to go further if something happens than the rest of us. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, tell me the cell phone number of somebody that you met in the last five years. (laughs) Nobody tell my, yeah, I was like, nobody tell my kids this. Okay. I know one of their phone numbers and not the other. (laughs) I have the oldest ones memorized because he got his phone first. When the youngest got his, I never memorized it. So that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, My oldest just got his first phone and phone number a couple, I guess what? Yeah, his birthday, so a couple months ago. And I yeah, I know that the first six digits of his phone number are the same as mine because they match. (laughs) (laughs) But the last four? You're in my favorites list, hon. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know my childhood phone number, my personal phone number, and my wife's number. That's it. Nice. Hey, Siri, call. That's your phone number. (laughs) Oh, now the iPad starts to go off. I can't. Sorry. So do you see this in other parts of your life other than the camera? What other parts do you see it in? Well, I think about it in terms of a lot of technology stuff. I'm struggling to find a, a really relevant example, but I imagine if you use Copilot, you'd feel guilty yes, about it. I feel guilty. I, I was thinking that when you were when I read this one. Cause that hitting tab and just having it fill in the code for me, I'm like, oh yeah, that looks right. Next. Well exactly. And we had talked about on previous episodes the fact that a number of us are sort of old dinosaurs and Speak we hearken back. <laughs> Some of us, I said. <laughs> <laughs> and and we hearken back to this time when there there wasn't a DevOps team and there wasn't a database administrator. There was just you and maybe one or two other people and you mm-hmm. had to know the things and you had to know how to do yeah. the JavaScripts and the CSS and then the SQLs. And now I don't know how to do anything platform related. I sort of barely understand how Docker works. And these are all really amazing technologies that I oh, work yeah. with, but there's this layer of abstraction that I feel not guilt is not the right word, but it's like I feel intimidated because it reflects back on me and how little I know about those things. Mm-hmm. With the backup camera, I, I do because I have like I'm a cheapskate. I have all my vehicles are old. My truck is from 1986, right? Dude, your truck is almost older than me. Yeah. It's the same make and model that I learned to drive on when I was 15. It's like, so it doesn't have a backup camera. So none of my vehicles have backup cameras. When I use my wife's car and I use the backup camera, I'm like, if I become, and it's like so awesome, like if I become dependent on this, I might forget how to do it in my truck. Mm-hmm. You will. You know, you I don't will. feel guilty about it, but it's like, I'm like, I can't, it's like, it's like a Mad Max. I don't, don't, become dependent on the water. <laughs> I, I bet you there is a really high correlation between people who enjoy using Copilot and people who like linters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Dear Diary, I've already created like four different epics this week in Jera. I love the idea of creating a deep backlog and I lean into having to reprioritize things on the fly. 
Love, Ben. <laughs> so, Ben, let's talk about your love for Jira. And, and how much you love the backlog. Deep backlogs. Mm, deep backlogs. <laughs> deep backlogs with Ben Nadell. <laughs> yes. Your own standalone podcast. <laughs> so, so this almost relates back to Carol's triumph when we're talking about process. And I was saying that I had an engineering manager who kept wanting to do burn down charts and I was ruining it for everybody because I just kept creating <laughs> tickets. I love the idea of being able to maximize the time in the day. And if I only have a single epic, then kind of to Carol's point earlier about downtime is that if you have a process that requires you to have downtime, then to me, that's like, lost value add. I could be doing something there and I didn't have the opportunity. So I will be monitoring Slack channels lightly and I'm not like obsessively monitoring, but I'm just watching to see what people are talking about in the support channel or the customer facing team channel or the customer success channel. And sometimes they'll ask, oh, hey, does, do we have this feature in the app? Or, or hey, a customer just came to us and said this XYZ isn't working well for them or could they lodge a feature request? And I'm honing in on those. And if there's something that catches my fancy, shiny thing, then I create an epic for it as almost like a placeholder that here's something I kind of want to work on. It might not be the thing I work on right now, but I want to know that it's there and it's been recorded. And I, I don't necessarily create all the tickets in the epic, but I know it's an epic worth of effort. So I'll create the epic and then I'll go back to my other stuff. And then if I'm in the middle of something where I get blocked or I'm waiting for, I don't know, whatever, and and I can quickly switch over to another epic just for a moment. Like some, some epics are more about like random work. Like I have an epic that I created this week just for feature flag cleanup. So I create a lot of feature flags in the application and I'm sometimes lazy about removing them. So sometimes if I have a 30 minutes to kill or an hour to kill, I'll look at that epic and I say, oh, this feature flag I can probably rip out in 15 minutes. Let me just go ahead and delete the rest of that. And so I'm finding the gaps in my day and I'm plucking right-sized efforts to correlate with the right-sized gap that I'm currently in the middle of. And I use these this deep backlog of stuff as a way to just constantly cram more stuff into my day because I work very set hours. I'm not one of those people who is like very focused at 11 p.m. At 11 p.m., I've already been asleep <laughs> for an hour and a half. So I maximize the time that I have and, and I just like to create, basically in the same way that I do note to self, any feature idea that enters my head, I want to get into the ticketing system so that even if I don't work on it for six months, I know, yeah, I know that five months from now, I'm going to be bored and I'm going to be scrolling through my tickets and I'll be like, oh, right. I totally forgot about that one. Let me see if I can knock that one out this week. Now, earlier you said you couldn't even find the backlog. So it sounds to me like you're using epics as a backlog. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. I, okay let right. me just quickly look at my, where's my agile board? So my Agile board currently has 71 items in the to-do column. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. So that's how I roll, though. That's I don't know how to organize it otherwise. But it works for you, and you're a one-person team now, so that's okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So to me, it's like when I have a moment and or I'm not sure what I want to do next, I'll just scroll down that to-do list, and I'll find the thing that feels like the right balance of how much work do I want to be doing right now, how hard is something going to be? How much time do I have to dedicate to it? And I'll scroll down and, and I'll find the, the thing that feels like it's the, the Indiana Jones sack of sand to get the, the gold head. So I would love to have you on our team because around Christmas, we hit this point where me and two other, three other engineers were in the backlog looking and there's literally nothing to work on. <laughs> we couldn't find anything that was in the realm of what we were capable of doing. Like there were things that the integration team has to work on or they were things that other people had already started and needed to finish up. So they weren't really things we could pick up. So I just hit the error log. I hit our error management system and was like, I'm going to find things to work on over here because there's nothing in the backlog. If we had you... I would have 61 <laughs> things to choose from right now. And I could just work anything in the 15 minute window. If you blocked it off, like, Hey, go clean up these feature flags. Great. You've already done the legwork to tell me what needs to happen. So I can go make it work. I hate doing the legwork of finding what needs to be done. So yeah. I think every team should have someone like you in that role that finds the things that are needed and gets them in the hands of the developers. So. I'll tell you one thing that I have tried to push several times of the company. And it has never gotten any traction for reasons that I don't quite fully understand. I wanted to come up with some sort of a special JIRA label 
that you could assign to tickets. And these tickets were tickets created by engineers for engineers. And I wanted to call them make it rain tickets because you just make it rain. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and I wanted, (laughs) and I wanted as a company for us to celebrate like, Oh, look at this month. We did 150 product roadmap tickets and we did 37 make it rain tickets. Like look how motivated our engineers are to just find problems in the system and and be self-motivated to fix them. And I get so jazzed up just even talking about it. And I I feel like I'm talking to a concrete wall when I bring it up at work. I think, you know what I think it is? I think they're from the product side of the house. I think there's a theoretical idea that, oh, wouldn't it be great if people were self-directed and motivated? Mm -hmm. But from a rubber meeting the road perspective, I think a lot of times the idea of engineers just going off and doing work is very scary for some people. Rogue. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Some people call it rogue. Some people call mm-hmm. it self motivated. <laughs> <laughs> I know at our company years back, when Carol, I think you were there at the time, Carol, we would have these like bounty, like these competition bounty days where everyone would try to like just go knock out as much stuff as they could. Mm-hmm. And it was like kind of a free for all, like a Hunger Games kind of thing. There was like cash prizes. And yeah, sure. I mean, it, maybe it looked good to the customers because they saw their cause numbers went down, right? They saw the yeah. numbers went down. Yeah. But honestly, the level of stuff that came out was, yeah, it didn't overall improve the product. So we we just didn't, we don't do that anymore. We do have, we're supposed to have, we didn't around Christmas because we were just out of work, but we have what we call technical debt task. So we have all these things that are labeled as technical debt. And it's, if you don't have something to do, go pick up some technical debt and just clean it up. Find something that needs test coverage. Find something that we're not using anymore. There's something being called that really doesn't happen. So just go spend some time and clean that up. So we do have the technical debt in our backlog that the developers create and we prioritize into work as well. Yeah, we, we're doing something similar like that too now. It works a lot better. Yeah, the bounty on it, it just, you like you said, you push out crap because it's about quantity, not quality. Yeah. It was it was numbers game. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a quality game. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help with software. Yeah. So I want to go back to, Carol, you said like at Christmas time, you were picking stuff out of the error log because you didn't have anything in the backlog to do. Yeah. Uh, just like you said, you'd like to have Ben on your team. I'd love to have that on my team, right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. We started out, we started our product Greenfield just 10, less than 10 years ago. And we started with the best of intentions, like literally every error that was trapped by the system went into a a log that would push into our team chat. And I would look at every single exception that got thrown. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, we have a, a chat room dedicated to bugs or to the bug log thing. And we try to, if it's something that should be fixed. That's why it's in chat, right? Like some of them, sometimes it's just awareness of volume, right? Mm-hmm. If they're, if yeah. you're getting one error an hour, it's not a big deal. But when you start to get 30 an hour or a hundred and something's up and that, that becomes a lot easier to notice. And, and there's other ways of getting that sort of alerting, but we started with the best of intentions, like every exception. We're going to look at it. We're going to find out why. And like if it's just because the sh- user shouldn't have been able to double click that button, but they were or like just fixing all those little things. And now it's gotten to the point where it's starting to become noise, right? And things that are of value are starting to slip through the cracks because yep. there's too much noise to the, the, the noise to signal ratio is off. Mm. Yeah. So what, what we have is a priority flag on our errors. So mm-hmm. if I see an error that's getting thrown and I realize that it's just kind of a noise error, it's not really an error, but we probably should go figure out a better way to handle when this doesn't happen. Like it's not a problem, mm-hmm. but something caused that error to be thrown. We can actually go in and change the level on it so that it just becomes like a low level and it's not in your face then. But when you have free time, go grab it and see if you can kind of figure out what's going on with it. That way, the high priority ones stay high priority and they're not so masked by the low level things. And if I had a dream job, if I had like could do my dream job, it would be nothing but living in error management and just fixing every single error log entry until there's like no error log. That's my dream job. That's what I would wow. want to do. I would love uh, it. I would spend every day doing you, nothing but that. Are you a sadist? <laughs> I have no I, I get super happy when I open it up. I'm like, oh, this happened a hundred times over a month. I'm like, let me go figure out why. Let me get to the root of it or let me figure out if it's not really a problem and get that gone. Like clean it up, move on. My dream. That reminds me like, you know, early on, I was talking about early on, we looked at every single exception and we tried to like clean them up. It was the best feeling in the world to 
be able to email a customer and say, I saw that you created an error. You ran into mm-hmm. an error when you tried to do this thing. I fixed yes. the error and you should be able to do that now. And they're yeah. like, wait, what? what? Yeah, I didn't even possible. tell you. Yeah, I didn't even tell that's you. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Have you ever had bugs that you try to attack several times over a long period of time? Like I have bugs where I'll see it in the error log for a long time. And I'm like, you know what? This is the week. This is the week that I'm going to fix this. <laughs> and I try it and I get like an You're hour into down. it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember now. This is why I couldn't solve it last time. <laughs> and then I'll give up. And then months later, I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to get that damn bug. This is the week. This is the week. <laughs> I just keep failing over and over again. Absolutely. But I keep going back to them. I keep going back. My favorite one is we have a connection to FEMA to basically get updates on any disasters that have happened. And for whatever reason, they keep changing some of the HTML and one of the things that they're sending us and someone coded it to look for something and it's not there anymore. So I fixed it once. Now they've changed it again. And I'm like, oh, I got to come up with a better solution. But it's like, 29,000 errors over a month. Like, this is a lot of errors. I was like, oh, boy. So, yeah, you got to just keep going back. Got to keep going back. And sometimes you go back that fourth time, and for whatever reason, that's when you finally make that connection. It clicks. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, that was the line I was missing. I would chase bugs for a living any day. (laughs) Note to self. Went back to transpiling my JavaScript. Sad panda. (laughs) Love, Ben. So as I've mentioned several times, I've been trying to modernize my blogging platform. And one of the things that I made the decision to do was drop support for IE11. And I thought that when I did that, I'd be in this evergreen world where everybody was on modern browsers all the time. And I could just stop transpiling, which is the idea of taking modern JavaScript and compiling it down into uh, JavaScript that's supported by older browsers. I thought I could just stop doing that and start shipping async await to the browser and start shipping string literals. And, you totally um, can. You just got to stop caring about your users. I know. That's and, and like it was. It goes <laughs> fine. And then I start monitoring the error logs, and I see stuff coming in, and I'm like, "Who are these people?" And clearly they love your blog. So why are you pushing them away? And and the thing is, it becomes, it's this philosophical problem because I could get rid of those errors by just changing one line in my package.json, which is this browser's list property, which tells parcel is my compiler. It tells parcel how much to transpile the code back to, to late to legacy support. And all I have to do to get rid of those errors is add that one line. And it's like, from a, do I have a moral obligation to put that line in there to get that experience better for those people? And I want to be the person who says I don't need to do that, but I can't. I have to. I, I had to go back to so, I mean, to get rid of the errors. Web fundamentals, Ben. Progressive enhancement. I, <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the reality, yes, I agree. I, and I consider doing that. So right now, I ship just a single JavaScript file to the browser and that does all the things mm-hmm. and i did consider for example there's one thing that toggles the menu opening the navigation menu when you go from a desktop sized application to a mobile sized application i changed it from a nav bar to a little drop down menu and there's just like a couple of lines of javascript that runs that menu and so i thought to myself well if i don't transpile this whole thing i could split just that part out say to a different javascript file and give it better support because the reality is that doesn't do anything except have mouse event handlers so it doesn't even have anything fancy and then i wouldn't have to worry and i could think oh the navigation would still work on a mobile device even if the main javascript payload didn't compile properly on the client but then it just it gets complicated now i'm shipping multiple javascript files and that just seems like a pain in the butt so i thought i was living in this brave new world of evergreen browsers and i'm definitely leaning into the fetch API and promises being a native part of the browser. So I'm not polyfilling anything, but I just, I had to get rid of those errors in the error log. They may not have even been doing anything. I don't know. <laughs> so I would be curious to know what pages they were getting to. Like, are we looking at I mean, blog it's a posts? Blog. It's a blog. Yeah, we there, there is no at, pages. <laughs> well, are we looking, are they looking at pl- like posts from 2014 of Cold Fusion updates? Because then that would explain why they're probably Excuse on. Excuse me, Cold Fusion is an evergreen technology. <laughs> <laughs> I snorted. 
good. So I don't know. Browser support is such a is, is such a prickly issue for me. Hmm. Adam, it sounds like you have some opinions here. What are you doing? Who are you targeting? I mean, you work in education, so that's like a whole different ball. Yeah, there's laws about uh, accessibility and stuff. We transpile. We're currently using ES Build, and we just target. I think it's ES4 because why not? Oh wow! Yeah, that's like really all. It's either ES4 <laughs> or ES5. It's got to be ES5, I think. Does, does AOL browser work on that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of a don't ask, don't tell sort of situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh, let me ask you this, and yeah. if, if you're not comfortable talking about it, we can skip it, but you're building a feature for a, a, a platform, essentially, of a platform service. What do you test in, browser-wise? What do you feel obligated to test in? Yeah, so it's funny because we, our product is kind of split in half. We have a, an admin interface that is used almost exclusively by university staff, mm-hmm. and then we have what we call pub site or the public facing thing, which is so in admin stuff, they'll like create an event that their constituents, their alumni and, you know, friends of the university can register, for example. And then on the public site, the the public can register to attend that event. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of have different requirements for the two. We've just sort of accepted that a reasonably modern browser and JavaScript are absolutely required for, for admin. So we can take a little bit more liberty cut a few corners on progressive enhancement type stuff in admin. Yeah. And in PubSite, we have a responsibility to check accessibility scores, make sure we're doing all of the the right stuff there so that the disabled and screen readers and et cetera, et cetera, can all use the site. So but are you cracking open IE 11 or anything and, and checking on that or? No, we kind of rely on a few tools to yeah. like lighthouse and whatever to, there's different browser extensions that you can audit with, and we've deemed that to be good enough. That's where I'm at too. As a, I mean, we're a technically a five person team, but truly, when it comes to time spent engineering this product, it's a three person team with a sort of a dedicated sales and and support person on the side. And so we don't, yeah, we we just don't have the bandwidth to be that thorough we've kind of decided good enough is good enough i guess so we we make an effort to meet and exceed the letter of the law but we don't make any guarantees note to self a qa phase what's a qa phase (laughs) (laughs) love them i mostly work alone at work so i do this is news to me (laughs) (laughs) I do everything from generating tickets to trying to hack together designs to writing the SQL scripts to deploying it and testing it and everything. And I was, I'm now in the middle of the planning phases for a migration and I'm working with a product manager that's on the modern system, the modern platform. And this is, this has been such an extensive planning phase. It's so long. We've been doing this planning for months where I'm, I forget whole aspects of the plan just because we've spent so much time planning different areas. Anyway, so he's talking about the timelines and when are we going to get this done and when's marketing going to get their stuff done and when is the technical stuff going to get done? And then he's like, how long do you think we'll need to budget for QA? And I was like, QA? <laughs> <laughs> QA what? Like, I'm going to build it and ship it. I don't understand what you're talking about. And I, and it's, it was just one of those things where it highlighted to me how different my day to day is as this like remnant of a bygone era. And the new teams who have much more robust processes in place, they have people and they have systems that, that help do all the testing. And I don't even know what that world is like anymore. How much quicker can you deploy versus they? Well, (laughs) I mean, there's nobody in his way. Carol, you look like you got something to say there. Well, no, we not only have a QA team, we have a SQA team. So what we don't SQA? have, we have senior quality assurance members. So we have like higher end QA than just your off the street person coming in to learn how to wow. test your system. It's like, it's like we hire support. people. Can you escalate me? I didn't know they had a CAS system in QA. So we, <laughs> like one of our test automation engineers has her doctorate. I mean, we have people writing our automation tests who are very qualified at what they're doing. 
This yeah. isn't just like some random user testing something for you on the front end and looking at it. Mm-hmm. They're actually taking your logic and making sure the test follows what the customers wanted. So, yeah, it's so kind of completely though. different. Yeah. And that's why I said at the beginning of the show, we do the same things, but it's crazy how we do them so differently. Yeah. Like this whole new cycle thing that we're in, it's an eight week cycle, six week of development and two weeks of QA. And since we're kind of short on QA, it's possible that some of the developers are going to be testing other developers work like to assist the QA teams. But the point is that it has to be done in like a six week window. So you have time for quality to get through everything they need to do because they do front end tests. They do regression testing. They run all of our automation there is so much testing that gets done before we deploy anything that I couldn't imagine deploying code now and it breaking because it goes through so many tests. <laughs> it's not a thing anymore. How long does a QA phase take? So so you got these eight-week cycles. Is there a QA portion of those eight-week cycles or, or that's unrelated to the cycles? Technically, it's a two-week at the end of it. Again, this is my first time on a cycle, so this is learn-as-we-go kind of thing. But it's eight weeks, six weeks development, two-week QA, closeout window is when they're wrapping everything up. But like we just handed over the project that we finished early to QA, so they're going to start testing it now because it's ready for them. But And they'll release it whenever they sign off on it, so they don't have to wait till the end. So it really just depends on how big the effort is. And also we look at what the impact of something failing is to the system. So if we're talking about losing substantial amount of money, then it's going to spend more time in QA than if I just Mm. changed the header on a form. I think this actually ties perfectly back to the backup camera thought (laughs) experiment there. (laughs) Okay. Which is that, do you think, and this is a strictly hypothetical here, Do you think engineers that know they're going to have a robust QA process at the end of their cycle, do you think they test as thoroughly as if they weren't going to have QA? Is QA making people sloppy, I guess, is to put it bluntly. And Carol, remember your boss listens to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Right? This is is totally hypothetical. I saw her face. I know what the answer is. Hypothetically speaking, I would say, yes, it can, you know, push off. Yeah, that's a good word. Good word. Because again, I know that if I get something slightly off, it's going to be caught by some automated Mm -hmm. test and it's going to get picked up. But typically I do a pretty good job testing my own stuff, but I test less of my own stuff now, like in the front end than I did at my previous job. At my Mm -hmm. previous job, I pushed nothing out that I didn't run through the entire system, through every process, because I wanted to make sure I didn't bust anything that I didn't even know about. Now I'm just like, all right, login worked. I got to the page. <laughs> happy PR's out the I'm door. Good. Yeah, it's literally all I have to do because I know everything else is covered on the back end. Let QA worry about edge cases. Not my problem. <laughs> worked on my machine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it can. Yeah, that's funny. It's so interesting. I'm so torn about it because on the one hand, I definitely love the idea of having a series of gates between the, the software that's being developed and the users and, and quality being insured at those various gates. But then I do worry that it makes things slower and sloppier, maybe not a, as a final product because you have so many eyes on it, but it's like, what if you got rid of that and then just hardened? Like there's this whole concept of what is it called? Shifting left, right? In the security world, they're talking about this all the time. It feels like everybody's responsible for security. It's shifting left in the product development cycle. And I almost wonder if QA, like why isn't QA shifting left as well? Sorry, that's me just ranting, but I don't know. I don't want to put anybody out of a job. (laughs) No, for me, if I were to be responsible for QAing my own work, I'm only going to go down the path that I know of. So I know what I changed and I know that area and I'm going to go do that piece testing. I'm not going to think to test the rest of the system. Mm -hmm. I'm not Mm going to regression test the rules engine against this change to know if the rules engine is also picking up something from this that I didn't even know about. So for me, I think QA is super important because I, as a developer, am only going to test that little piece that I touch. I'm not going to go do the whole right, system. Right, right. So yeah. it, it makes sense. It makes sense. Part of me is probably just jealous that I don't have QA people. I, <laughs> I could not do a manual QA person's job. Oh. It would. I would probably walk into traffic before the end of my first week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's a yeah, it's a totally different skill set and mindset, right? Than yeah. From a developer, developers want to build stuff from the ether, and people who like testing stuff, you know, they like finding flaws and things, yeah. right, and pointing them out. So it's just a different personality. Right. Note to self: Peeps sure do love their let and const. <laughs> love, Ben. Yo. Oh. Let, let's have it. Come on. Let's come on, buddy. Yo, I am just VAR for life, baby. I, VAR for life. <laughs> so, so for the, for people who are listening, oh, uh, what we're talking about is variable declarations in JavaScript specifically. Old school, there was VAR variables. So you said like VAR X equals three. In the beginning, there was VAR Sorry. and it was very good. And then people like hated on this and I don't fully understand why. And so then they said, oh, well, modern JavaScript has to have let and cons, which are now these block level scoping for variables, mm-hmm. which apparently solve a whole bunch of problems that people are running into every day. And I just, I don't buy it. I mean, yes, I understand that there are some edge cases that are solved by having let and const and, and locking a variable to a particular scope. But the reality is you can't in, in the same conversation say, hey, Modern JavaScript and clean JavaScript should have small functions that are do one thing and do one thing well and have well-named variables and should be, you know, broken down into function calls. And those function calls should be telling people what things are going to do instead of having comments. You can't preach all of that and then say that, oh, well, I, I should do const for variables so that it tells the person what that variable is going to do and how it's used. I'm like, shouldn't everything that you just said already have taken care of that? If I'm looking at a function, I'm ranting now. I apologize. If I'm looking at a function, <laughs> okay. we love it, and it's five lines long, and I declare a variable var, and I use it once, like you don't have to see that it's const to know that it's never going to change. Like you got five lines of codes to work with, and but, I, so the problem is you you can redeclare and update var. That's yeah. okay. It's you okay. can do it, <laughs> so, but, but if it gets you complex, can. you might accidentally do it and screw up. I don't know. It's like curmudgeon Ben. It just feels like as someone who's been in the industry for a long time, my perspective on it from the outside is some very bright people at one point said, Hey, you should be doing Latin cons because it solved problems. And then a whole bunch of other people were like, Oh, well, of course we should be doing that because these really smart people over here said it. And it's obviously solving a lot of problems. And then it became like just this like cargo culted philosophy on variable usage. To the point where people are like, I just like their arguments to me don't even make any sense. Yeah. Well, as a person who's accidentally like read, I thought something should be like a singleton that should never, the variable should never change and accidentally done it in my code. I do appreciate if you let, if you use let and, and you try to redeclare it, it's going to error. So, you know, yeah. very quick, you screwed up. I mean, I, I see your point, Ben. I think my perspective is, Say you use let and const and you transpile it back to ES. I mean, it's possible to transpile it all the way back to like ES4 probably, right? It's going to transpile it to var and it's just going to treat it with the respect that it needs in order to to accomplish all the same goals. So it's definitely possible to write equally well-performing code, identical functioning code without those keywords. But I think the argument in favor of them is that those in combination with additional tools like TypeScript can alert you to potential problems before you would have to like notice it happening in the browser and go, oh, okay, that's because I that variable already exists and I overwrote it accidentally sort of thing. So it, it's a matter of the, the tools alerting you to a problem, not that you couldn't or wouldn't have found that problem otherwise, but it's bringing it to your attention rather than waiting for you to find it. So I had read a blog post about this. This was a while back, so I had to go find it while you were talking. So sorry, I didn't really totally listen to everything, but totally I get the gist of it, right? But in the bottom of it, she's like, my conclusion about let and const is I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I would use whatever convention already exists in the code base. And if my linter throws a problem, then I'll address it when that happens. That's funny. And I was like, that totally made me think of this whole conversation. So I had to go find it. Ben would agree if he used a linter. (laughs) (laughs) Linters linters exist to serve you. She also says this. Linters exist to serve you. 
if your linter rule annoys you and your team, delete it. <laughs> the rule, yeah. I thought we found your soulmate, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> I look at it like salt in that I know salt can be dangerous if you have too much of it, right? It can lead sure. to high blood pressure and, and various problems, I assume. And extremely tasty food. And- <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. But uh, like my blood pressure is good. And when I go to my general physician and he takes my blood pressure and he does all my blood work, like my blood pressure is good. My cholesterol is good. So I don't see a reason to curb salt usage on my day to day until I find some level of usage that's actually problematic. And the doctor says, Hey, you should dial back on that salt a bit. And, and, and I look at far the same way. Like, yeah, maybe there's some edge cases that let and const will fix, but it's just one more thing to have to think about. It doesn't actually solve problems that I find myself running into. And by using VAR, I just know how things work and I don't have to ever think about it. And I don't have to worry about, well, I declared it at this block originally in my algorithm, but now my algorithm is changing and I need to declare it here and here. So now I need to change it from a let to a VAR. And then, oh, well, now it's, I had it. I don't know, like whatever. It's like, it's just, it adds complexity, whereas just using VAR just works and it just solves all my problems. Back in my day, we used VAR willy-nilly. Now this let cut mumbo-jumbo and we liked it. <laughs> I want to recircle back to some of these conversations when Ben's on a giant team. Yeah. <laughs> when he's not all rogue coding. Lone, rogue, yeah, yeah. lone wolf. No, it'll be super interesting to see how my reality is checked when I have a, a number of other people to contend with. Anything sure. VAR can do, cons can do better. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> yes, I can. Cool. So this episode of Working Code was brought to you by the new hit podcast, Deep Backlogs with Ben Nadell. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners like you. I'm sorry, I'm broke myself. <laughs> if you're enjoying the podcast, you should consider supporting us on Patreon. Support from listeners like you helps to keep the mics on, and we appreciate each and every one of you. You can join that crew over at patreon.com slash workingcodepod. All of our patrons get early access to an ad-free version of new episodes, and they get our after show, which is more of this drivel. I don't know why you would want to listen to it, but apparently some of you do. We really appreciate all all of their support, but our biggest thanks go out to our top patrons, Monty and Peter. Thank you guys so much. Did you know that word of mouth referrals are the gold standard of marketing? I just made that up, but it sounds pretty good. So please try to think of someone that you think would enjoy this podcast and suggest that they give it a listen. That's going to be it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, note to self. <laughs> In the deepest part of me, I realize... <laughs> That our listeners, they have a heart. They really do. Some of them give, some of them listen, some of them comment on our Discord channel. One thing I find over and over again is that their heart really matters. Love, Ben. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.